In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Afternoon Tea with host Sammy Sage. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. Presented by the Betches Sub Podcast. You better hope there's a lot of girls listening to this with the volume turned down. Your weekly dose of political therapy. Cardi, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And now, with this week's guest. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Your host, Sammy Sage. Welcome to today's episode of Afternoon Tea, your companion to the morning announcements and weekly political therapy session brought to you by The Betches Sup. Today's guest is Holly Whitaker, author of the book Quit Like a Woman and founder of Tempest, an organization that takes a new approach to helping individuals recover from alcohol addiction. We chatted about her experience and journey to sobriety, the history of AA and its ties to patriarchal ideas, the parallels between the cigarette and alcohol industries, and how she created a new approach to sobriety that focuses on the root cause of addiction problems. With that, let's get the tea from Holly. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited too. Thank you, like, thank you so much. <laughs> so I read your book two about two weekends ago. Um, a friend recommended it to me, and I sped through it in like two days. Um, and honestly, I think that, like, I immediately said, like, we have to have her on afternoon tea, and because I think the audience will find some of the things you said so enlightening. I'll be honest, I haven't. Like, I don't think a day has gone by that I have not thought about your book since I read it just because of like, you know, it had some really eye opening um, things that you pointed out like um, and we'll, we'll get to those. So I guess before we, um, you know, get into sort of like the theory that you wrote about in your book, do you want to can you possibly just give us some like background how you ended up um, where you are now? Yeah, oh, that's such a hard question. Um I think that it comes down to that I drank for 17 years and I had a quote unquote healthy and unhealthy relationship with it. And I, I had what turned into severe alcohol use disorder um, towards the end of, of my you know, quote unquote drinking career. And for me, I think the, the moment that released me from feeling like I had to make alcohol work was realizing that we're really conditioned to believe that we are supposed to drink and that alcohol is supposed to work for us and having an epiphany around this idea that I didn't have to make it work. Um, and that, that, that could be a sign of my health, not of my disease. And so for me, the real turning point was, I think getting this awareness, I read this book called uh, the easy way to control alcohol because I was so committed to keeping alcohol in my life and so committed to making it work. And I read this book by Alan Carr that essentially said, um, you, uh, that we're, we're all, everyone that consumes alcohol is on the spectrum of addiction. The same way everyone that smokes cigarettes, um, is on the spectrum. Like you, when you consume an addictive substance, um, you are, you know, having to control it. And so for me, that was a really big shift in that I did not, 
I was able to step back and see how alcohol was actually showing up in my life. And I did not like what I saw. And so while I had a severe problem with it, I also was really, um, I think, motivated by this idea that I could have a totally different life and that I could have a life that was not centered around getting drunk or, or drinking or commuting over wine or whatever, that I could have a totally different life. And that was really what propelled me to quit drinking myself. And then I had so many experiences that added up to the writing of the book, um, which is not just about drinking and alcohol. It's really about um, how we're conditioned into it and then what happens to us when we confront it and try and change our relationship with it. Your story was very inspiring in terms of the path that you took, because I think that probably a lot of women can see themselves in it. Um, but there were two points that you made in the book that these are the things that I've sort of not been able to get off my mind. Um, and the first is your comparison from between the alcohol industry and sort of like the heyday of the cigarette industry. Mm-hmm. So can you share um, like some of your research in that area sure. and like what makes you make that comparison? Yeah, I think I, I wanted to understand because I had an early idea. So this is before Sober Curious. When I was getting sober... I had my own epiphany around alcohol and around, and and I wasn't the first to it, but it was a very, very small number of people that were writing about or talking about alcohol um, in a way that made sense to me. I had this belief that people would shortly start to look at how alcohol shows up um, in our society and that we would start to look at things like secondhand drinking which is real. Most of the societal damage, most of the damage done from alcohol is not necessarily to the person consuming, it's to those around them. So there was just this like belief that we would have a shift in our, our glorification of alcohol and because it had trended up. And so I dug into understanding the cigarette and really exploring how it peaked and then how it declined um, because I had a feeling that there were a lot of similarities in that. And then what you find when you start really peeling back the layers of of the cigarette, not tobacco, but the cigarette, is that it's a it's a relatively new invention. It was something that was at the beginning of the night of the uh, of the twentieth century, so an early nineteen hundreds, something that um, was turned into a mass commodity um, that people did not have large awareness that they needed. And so there was a couple of factors that really, deployed uh, that were deployed in in terms of making cigarette consumption which peaked in the 1970s making cigarette consumption something that was so monumental to how we think of mid-century america and that was one the there was a convergence of business interests a large business that that contributed to large marketing budgets but then there was also a specific ploy in hooking um, users that uh, were hooking, hooking markets that were not smoking. And so the first market that was not smoking as much as men was women. Um, and the tobacco industry did this through essentially public relations and propaganda. They tied the cigarette um, to the idea of, lib- of like women's lib and they um, enlisted feminists to smoke publicly and they really tied the idea of the cigarette as a rejection of patriarchy and early feminist movements, which inspired more women to lean into smoking and also to smoking publicly, 
which women were not doing at the time in the early 1900s, smoking publicly to basically increase conspicuous consumption. And then there were lots of what we would now look at as influencer campaigns that were really dedicated to hooking more women smokers. Um, and then there was also this other piece of this, which was this, the tobacco industry as the ills of tobacco were being connected to lung cancer and death. Um, what they did was essentially hire up a PR firm that fronted as a scientific arm um, to basically cause confusion about whether cigarettes hurt people. And so when you look at alcohol and you look at the trajectory of alcohol and the way that it moved from a really um, decentralized market into a central in, into basically a large industry there. I just read something yesterday that a third of all that, all the beer produced is produced by one company. Um, and so the, essentially the alcohol industry co-opted that same idea that drinking was an act of feminist rebellion, that we drink like men to show like our parody with men. Um, but also engaged in tactics that confuse us around whether alcohol is healthy or not and also follows the same trajectory of moving into untapped markets that start with women and children and then move into lower um, and middle income countries um, and populations that are not uh, consuming the way we do in America. So in your research, did you find that women or just people in general were not consuming as much alcohol as uh, they are now? We in general, we're not, as, we're not consuming as much alcohol as we are now. I think yesterday I read something too that said since the 60s, or it was, I think it was based in UK, but since the 60, 60s, alcohol consumption doubled. Like we have, we have as a society started to drink more, um, but also, yes, specifically rates of, of alcohol consumption and addiction among women are the rates that are growing the fastest. And there was just recently a study that was published, um, not by Harvard. I can't remember who, but, but that showed just even in pandemic um, drinking or problematic drinking or heavy drinking among women increased by 41% from baseline. Yeah, I think the pandemic is its own sort of like anomaly mm -hmm. um, that has definitely increased like the usage of substances yeah. overall. I mean, people are just kind of sitting at home and like, I know I've spoken to friends who were just like, okay, well, what else am I going to do? I'll just have a drink and like, then I'll go to sleep. That's right. Um, and it's, you know, it, it just feels like, okay, like, what else? I mean, I think that when, like, when I think about looking back on like the 50s and 60s, I see like the Mad Men era, and I see like men getting drunk during the workday. Yeah. Um, how have like the drinking patterns shifted from, from that time to now? We're consuming more. It's you think about it, like we have, that's like one image that comes to mind. But when you mm -hmm. think about it, back then, we didn't have like social media um, and the normalization that we do have now when it comes to drinking. So yes, maybe they were drinking during the day and there were bar carts in the offices, but today, you know, you have everything that's centered on alcohol. You have it being paired with almost every single event that you experience. Um, it's sold, you know, to us in supermarkets. You don't have to go to a specialty store to get it. It's something that is essentially like it's, it's, it's permeated almost every single um, um, experience that we have and sold to us is something that you pair every single event that you encounter or experience with. And so it, we have this idea in our mind of drinking like that, but actually, if you think about it, 
back then it wasn't something that was that we were constantly hit over the heads with that this is what we should be doing all day every day right i mean something when i say i've thought about the book like since i read it it's that now i'm noticing i'm like okay what why why drinking is the center kind or it's not the center but it is the it is an essential piece like if i'm having people over i'm gonna like like there's I would probably not not offer them a drink like I can't really see a world in which I would do I wouldn't do that um but I imagine like that must have been like what it was like to pull out a cigarette um in the 50s like it was just normal to you know smoke a cigarette in someone's living room well you didn't really it was so normalized like you just didn't really question whether or not it was bad for you before studies started to come out around it I think the same thing is really true with alcohol is that it's so normalized and we really don't we might read a study, but more likely we're going to encounter a barbecue or a happy hour or a Zoom happy hour or things in our normal life that give us confirmation bias that everyone is doing it. And therefore, if everyone is doing it, then it's probably not that bad. Yeah, I, I've, I've also noticed people drink like on social media. I notice people showing they're drinking more. I'm like, yeah, I mean, when you kind of think about it, it's like, why do we do this? Yeah. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. You get fast free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. Something else that was in the book that I feel like will be super interesting to our audience um, is about um, the origin of Alcoholics Anonymous and how Alcoholics Anonymous plays this sort of role as like the default method to become sober. And if you don't do it, people might assume you're not taking sobriety seriously. But you dove into sort of the origins of of Alcoholics Anonymous and who it was really invented for. Um, So could you tell us sort of a little bit about your theory behind you know, the tie in between Alcoholics Anonymous and like patriarchal ideas. Sure. And I think it's really important to understand that there, this is not that being critical of Alcoholics Anonymous and especially who it was created for and who it still largely serves is not being critical of it as a program to individuals using it. But it's really important to understand that Alcoholics Anonymous was this first, it was a really radical 
um, conception. It was this idea, you know, that you, you didn't necessarily have to believe in God. You could believe in higher power. There was all sorts of things about it that were in their very own way, quite radical. The thing that's, that is the reason that it's important to talk about is because it is what colors our idea of recovery in general, which, which just go, which, which just means that people that I encountered that did not know what Alcoholics Anonymous would were, were of the mind that I should do it. And also our thinking is really influenced by equating recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous as real recovery. And so anything that's created in that program is really what gives us the filter through which we see recovery. So I think it's important to state that my comments on Alcoholics Anonymous are not don't use Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also understand where these things came from. But Alcoholics Anonymous was created in the 1930s. Um, it was created um, by two men, uh, two white upper class men. Um, and it was really created on this archetype and on this belief that drinking alcoholically really derived from a sense of power, uh, of too much power, um, a sense of entitlement, uh, being above the law. Uh, you know, not being able to emote. It was really based on this archetype of, of, of white, cis, hetero, um, upper-class male. And that the anecdote to a drinking problem, too much power, um, you know, grandiosity, um, ego, you know, no humility, was to essentially break those things down. It was to admit powerlessness, was to humble yourself, was to be in service, and so when you really look at it and you go back to the very beginnings of it, these were mostly men that were being served. Um, there still is today a chapter in the big book that's called To Wives that specifically is <laughs> how to be a good wife to your alcoholic husband. Um, and it like specifically states, you know, don't be a nag or a killjoy because you might drive him into the arms of another woman. But it really was this very clear um centering on on this one archetype and and why this one archetype might be conditioned um into addiction and so what what the way that lives on and the, the reason it's so important to really pull back is to understand that when you take um anybody that is not first anybody at any intersection of identity that's not dominant and you take them and you put them into a program that's based on the dominant arch like the, the dominant powers, right? And so sense of owning the world, sense of being above the law, sense of being able to speak your mind, um, you know, sense of, of essentially like of, of male ego. And then you tell them that that's what's wrong with them. Most, most women specifically, let's just talk about women coming into recovery from addiction um, are not sick because they have this sense of owning the world. They're sick because because uh, they don't have that. They're sick because they are, they are in fact, you know, powerless in this society um, because they're not allowed to you know, be above the law because they have to follow all of the rules. And so really the commentary on it is that we have to really rethink recovery frameworks to include what might be making people sick. And, and AA still is centered on this idea that it's about breaking down your ego um, which is not necessarily a good thing for somebody whose ego is pretty torn up. Right. I think I feel like 
a lot of people who drink, it's not because they like think they're amazing. It's because they don't think they're amazing. It comes from like a lack of of self esteem or self worth or insecurity. I mean, I know like I've spoken to my friends about how like we acknowledge that like sometimes we feel like we drink to just feel a little more comfortable. Um, And that is, I think, like, you know, a very, a very common attitude towards towards alcohol for women. Um, You know, so you can feel like a little bit less self-conscious, which is kind of inherently um, it could potentially be inherently dangerous um, for someone, you know, who can become dependent on it. I thought it was so interesting in the book how you actually mentioned that women were not considered alcoholics and were not admitted to AA, um, but they were only AA was only serving serving them in the uh, capacity of being the wife of an alcoholic. If you think about it, like you think about like how women, you know, I don't, have you ever read Caliban and the Witch? No, I don't think so. <laughs> really good. Yeah. And everyone should yeah. read it, but it specifically talks about how like in capitalism, you know, the body of women and women in general were transformed really into machinery. We were, we were like transformed into subservient, you know, baby producers. And that still holds our worth is essentially in um, our either, you know, um, unpaid domestic labor, or it's in our emotional labor, or it's in our ability to produce, you know, a workforce. And so Mm -hmm. when you really like strip it back, and you think about women, how women are treated in this society, we are supposed to essentially uphold, you know, like we're the we're the upholders of virtue, we are the the mothers and the caretakers. And then when you think about the most um, terrible thing a woman can do is to basically fail at those duties. And so when you really are looking at the, the original idea of a woman who might be drinking alcoholically, you're looking at somebody who is selfish, who is choosing herself and her alcohol consumption over her duties to patriarchy, which are to raise children, clean home, take care of man. And so there was a special revile that was reserved for women and still is when you look at women and women who have their children taken away from them or women that get tangled up in the court system for using marijuana or whatever it is you look at and you see specifically how women are held to a totally higher standard and how if you are in addiction you're just the worst kind of woman right you're a woman that's basically thrown away you know your duty to to society Right. So in your in your book, you um you talk about how you started this organization called Tempest, and you're really trying to spread kind of a different um a different theory of recovery. So, and one of those things is that you do not, and I noticed that I used it, is that you you do not like the use of the word alcoholic um, or alcoholism. So, can you kind of tell us just a little bit around around that idea, and then what Tempest? What is your approach to you know helping people recover? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, and I write about them in the book why the term alcoholic can be really harmful. And I also want to be really clear that this is about us like generally using language. Um, versus there's lots of people that find safety in using the term alcoholic. And so there's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's, it really does come down to personal choice and how you want to identify it. But when you really step back and you start to strip away where the, where the term really came into popular use, it came into popular use through Alcoholics Anonymous, which established this idea that there was nothing wrong with alcohol, that there was something wrong with people that couldn't tolerate alcohol. And these people were alcoholics and they were the problem. And so what that does is remove corporate responsibility 
um, because you can't be responsible for a disease that some people just have versus mm-hmm. being responsible for selling a substance uh, and marketing a substance um, to a public that's using it in a way that's extremely harmful and not being responsible to that public. The main criticisms are around it are that we blame the people inside of the substance. And while there is a huge amount of responsibility and self-responsibility, I mean, and that is part of it. Um, there still is the, when you get down into it, the term is often applied to individuals who are willing to admit that they have a problem with alcohol. And what that ends up doing is also pathologizing, you know, I haven't had a drink in eight years. Um, I don't think about drinking. I read your post eight, eight you. things at eight years. Yeah. <laughs> eight years, eight years last Wednesday. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't consider myself an alcoholic. I don't consider myself one drink away from a drunk or like I have this disease um, I really look at myself as somebody that's just um, in, a, in, in the same type of healing that all of us could be in. Do you think that labeling um, an alcohol dependency as a disease is doing a disservice to the people who are to anyone who might potentially consider that they might need to curb their drinking? Yeah, I mean, there's like, there's such a long, that's such a long conversation, because there's so many different theories of addiction. But I do think that when you, I do think that the disease model of addiction can be extremely harmful. It's, it is helpful in that when something is classified as a disease, because of how our society is set up, we're more likely to be compassionate um, to the individuals, and that's good. And we're more likely to give treatment to individuals, and that's good. But that doesn't mean that, um, like, one of my favorite um, authors on the subject is Mark Lewis, who talks about it's the brain doing what the brain is designed to do versus Mm -hmm. a malfunction in the brain, you being a different pathological creature that would have been an alcoholic had you never even had a a drink. And so I do think the disease model, um, yeah, I, I do think it's problematic. Got it. No, I that that was actually eye opening to me because um, I it's funny, but I I basically needed to be um, driven to pick up a rental car in, in Colorado, and I got into this whole long conversation with the driver talking about how his father essentially passed away um, from drinking too much, yeah. and he had like no compassion for his yeah. father, yeah. which I thought was strange, and I was like, but it's and but I was this was before I read your book, yeah. I was um I was very you know. I said to him, I'm like, but don't you think he had a dis- like a dis- disease? Like, don't you think that if he wanted to stop, he could like he, you know, if he was able to that he would have and like, maybe thinking about how is like less in his control. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I think that there, you know, like you said, there's definitely like, positives and negatives. But I overall think that like you said, a more nuanced model right. of addiction is is necessary. So could you tell us how you basically founded your theory of how to become sober and what your organization Tempest does? Yeah, so Tempest, and I I would say that it is more, it's less than my theory. It's a collection of theories. And it's based in Ken Wilber's work of integrative, um, um, like basically it's an integrative model, which just means that uh, it, Tempest, takes into consideration all of you. And so everything that exists within your environment, within your, 
within your, within your thoughts, within your physical self, within uh, your relationships, the whole picture of you. Um, we drink because of the, the richness and the fullness of who we are. And therefore when recovering, two things have to happen. One, that has to be taken into consideration. And this is no different than social determinants of health, which just simply state your housing, your race, your class, financial, like all of it actually contributes to whether or not you will be healthy. And so we take this holistic view in that everything counts to determine the success of your recovery because all of that contributed to your addiction. And then the other piece of it is that it has to really be really um, centered in your own experience and decision-making. And so oftentimes when you're looking at recovery programs, again, tracking back to this um, shut up, sit down, listen, behave, don't drink, right? This very top-down approach of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which I'm, I'm being an extreme generalist here, but the idea is you don't know best, work the steps, give it up to a higher power. Um, what we've really tried to instill is this idea that agency or the choices of your own path and your own healing are what make healing work. And so the second piece and the second pillar for us is really creating a space where those that are suffering decide what their healing will look like instead of being told what their healing should look like. Mm -hmm. So you call this like a, a feminine centric recovery paradigm. Is, is that what you just described that it is like a more holistic approach to someone's circumstances? Or is there, you know, I know, because I know with with most recovery programs that, that I've heard of, there's like this cold turkey aspect, like you go in and then it's like, but it feels a little bit like you're sort of like walking on a tightrope. Um, when, you know, there's like what you said, like one drink away from a drunk. So how does, you know, does this model of recovery involve going cold turkey or like how does the actual recovery um, begin? Yeah, I think it's important to understand. So when we say like feminine centric, what we mean is it's centered on a different identity and not non non dominant identities. And that just simply means right in our culture, almost everything is centered in the male experience. And so this is not it doesn't preclude males from using our services. Um, it really is meant to essentially be uh, it, is, it is built around a different experience and a different set of assumptions. And feminine means flowing, right, instead of linear. Um, forgiving and instead of absolutes. And so if, if you think about like this, the, like the feminine as, as cyclical, the feminine as creation, the feminine as soft and flowing, then you're thinking of, you know, and there's all number of things. It's really based essentially on this idea, um, not of discipline, come in, sit down, work the steps, follow this path, this linear path. Um, but really on this path of, of, of self-discovery that, that is not linear. Um, there's a lot of pieces that add up to it, but, but mainly the, the framework is, um, you know, for, I think the, the best way to put it is we just, we don't think humans are, are the most fragile things. We think humans are incredibly capable of making decisions for themselves when given the right support structures and the right information. And so what that means is that some people choose um, to move through it and remove alcohol or to keep drinking or, or whatever. But our, our constant thing is providing people the right information and the right structure to make the right decision versus telling them what the right decision looks like. 
just to get a little more specific, um, I would be lying if I said I didn't know several people who have said to me, like, I feel like I'm drinking too much. And they're not the people who you would typically say, oh, that person needs to go to AA. Um, But I think that there are a lot of people who are sort of looking at their habits and thinking, like, I am a little too dependent on this or, like, I really... You know, I really look forward to my drink at like five. Let's say someone comes to Tempest or wants to try the approach. Like what is what is like step one? I hate to say steps at all, but what is uh, day one? So it's based in and founded in essentially providing you information so that you can start working with your thoughts and your beliefs so that you can start working on the root causes of why you drink in the first place and then also working on the cycle of addiction. And so what it looks like is giving you information to help you step back and examine how things are showing up in your life and what you actually want and what you want to get out of it. So one of the first things that we do is work with you to help you set an intention or a vision and to really distill a different future for yourself or what you actually want. Because so often that is what's missing from the picture. We can't see outside of the rut that we're stuck in. And so one of the first things that we do is help you work on really crafting what your desire is and what you want to get out of it. Um, And then from there, it's just providing you information and coursework and community and support in order for you to essentially understand what alcohol is, how it's showing up in your life, if you want to make a change around it, what that change is going to look like, and doing so in an environment where you are able to talk about it and commune over it and make decisions um, in a really judgment-free zone. Is it, um, do you sort of use the models of like having a sponsor or like a buddy or, or and doing like group ther- group sessions where people share things? Yeah, so we offer a spectrum of it. So there's sometimes one-on-one coaching. Um, we also have uh, support groups, which means these are small groups that are led by uh, a peer specialist, uh, one of our certified recovery coaches that would be like group. Um, and then also there are just larger community gatherings that are closer to a meeting, um, or like what you'd get if you go to AA. Um, and so a wide range of different ways to interact with community, but no, we don't follow a sponsor system. Got it. And last question before we get to the four questions, Mm -hmm. which is our ending segment. Um, do, do you work with other types of dependencies? Like, is it only alcohol or do you work with drugs, shopping addictions, sex? You know, I feel like there are so many different and something that I thought was really helpful to understand from your book was that you had a lot of, you had kind of a web to untangle. And I think that is sort of the nature, you know, so rarely is it like, oh, I just have like one thing that, that is like screwing me up. Cause usually like, I think especially with drinking, it could lead to like financial decisions that are, are bad yeah. or like dating decisions that All are bad. All sorts so, of bad decisions, yeah. When I started, yeah. I had um, a very long history of eating disorders. Um, so I was, I was extremely bulimic. I, um, I was severely addicted to pot. Um, I smoked all day, every day, um, drank. And I think what I, what I talk about and, and actually the same ethos that we uphold at Tempest is you really start with the first thing. Most people are going to come with multiple addictions, um, cross like co-occurring addictions, not cross addictions, co-occurring addictions. And what, what you really start to do, because it's very hard to work on everything at once is work with the thing that's really, really killing you. Um, and alcohol is very specific in the damage that it does, um, in the way that it works on the brain, 
um, in the, in the different ways that it affects depression or anxiety or sleep or physical health, um, mental health. There's so many different things that it does that often it's, it's the first pin. Uh, and so we focus on one thing, but yeah, it, we are focused on alcohol, specifically focused on alcohol. So you're going to find, you know, a cross section of individuals that are there are talking about alcohol. But there's also so many related pieces to this from PTSD um, to addiction, uh, to depression and anxiety, to eating disorders and individuals have used it for marijuana or sorry, um, pot addiction and I've also used it for shopping addiction and, and all sorts of different things. But yeah, there's a big, there's a big web oftentimes. That's amazing. I, you know, I really, I think what you have created is so special and so important. I think you're really ahead of the curve. Um, and you really just changed my perspective on a lot of things. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to. Yeah, you cannot say it because I mean, I had my I had a, a birthday party, like a week after I read the book. Yeah. And I was just thinking, I'm like, I'm like, okay, like, obviously, I'm gonna drink on my birth. But then I'm like, why? Like why? Like so, it throws everything into, throws everything into right. like everything's on the table. I know when I first started to kind of pull it back, I was just like, oh my god! And I wrote about this in the book, like this one time going out with my friend and watching and and being aware of my drinking, which I never had been before in that particular way, and then watching her drinking and then watching the bar scene and just being like, oh my god! You know, it's it's wild. Yeah. It's really, it's really a process, but um, you're doing such amazing work. So, you know, really keep it up. Okay, so let's move on to our final segment, the four questions, which is something I ask everybody. Really, it's to put you in a good mood, to be honest with you. Because, um, you know, podcasts can be intense. And, you know, I want, you know, I just it's supposed to be like a little bit of therapeutic. So the first question I ask everybody is what is your happiest memory ever? Oh God, that's really hard. I would say um, that the first thing that comes to mind is just the first time I went to Italy. Um, it really is the first time going to Rome specifically. Wow, that's that's amazing. Where like any specific place in Italy, like uh, in I Rome? I love Rome, and I think the first it was just the first time that I walked around and I saw uh -huh. like the colors, like just like the the largeness of it, and like I don't know, it just it was one of the most magical moments in my life. Um, I'm, so I'm with back. you on Italy. I mean, it's like it's amazing. <laughs> I really, I'm trying to go this summer. <gasps> Hopefully we will be allowed. Yeah, it's so bad over there right now because their their population is older and there's so many things that are on it. But my friends over there have been keeping me abreast of it, and I hope to go this summer too. Well, maybe we'll run into yeah. each other. Yes, if you need, if you need any suggestions, I and got we them. will not gra grab a drink. <laughs> we will we will just grab a, a nice I don't know Diet Coke and some mm -hmm. some cheese. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So next question. If you could go on vacation with any two people, who would they be and where would you go? Oh, I would definitely take my friend Sarah. Um, who else? Oh, this just makes me feel bad because I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to say one person. I'm going to take my friend Sarah um, just because okay. she's the funniest person that I know. And we have the best Are you going to Italy? Um, I suppose I would take her... Uh, to a theme park? I have no idea. That's terrible. I don't even want to. Okay. I need to think okay, about fine, it. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Okay. But I mean, you could just fall back on Italy. I could. Like, I you really take, could. Okay. Yeah. I would take Sarah to Italy. <laughs> <Fine>. <laughs> 
Okay, next question. What are you horrible at and should not be trusted with? Mm. Riding motorcycles. Um, I have okay. terrible balance. I run into things. Um, not with my car, but I, I have uh, – it's the one thing I've wanted to do and the one thing that I, I feel is a public safety uh, I cannot do. Okay, well, maybe maybe in a parking lot one day. <laughs> but, you know, there's worse things you could be bad at. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. I know, I know, I know. But I do want to ride motorcycles, so it's sad. <laughs> the parking lot. You know, you never know. Okay, last question. If you could just wave a magic wand and solve any of the world's problems, what would you pick? Oh, God. I mean, it would absolutely be addiction. I think it is it is one of the – and I mean that in – not eradicating addiction from the world, but I think addiction is where it starts. I think so much of our suffering starts at the place where we leave ourselves. And I think coming up with really thoughtful paradigms in order to help people heal the source of their, their biggest pain um, is, is how, we, how we get to anything like climate change. Um, I, I think it's the base of everything, personal healing. Right. I think also, especially when, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, looking at addiction as like any use within a spectrum and not it's not like zero and one addict not addict um and that like all of our relationships and crutches and leaning on things do have um an impact on the world that's right we're we're trained not to be with ourselves we're trained to use something the moment that we confront anything that is a little uncomfortable and i it's why i think it's it's where it's at because what happens when you you really give people the tools to stay with themselves instead of going somewhere else like shopping or instagram or the liquor store which i think could help everybody yeah, i'm sure right. i'm sure after this pandemic of just being like consumed by screens and yeah. not really getting the heat you know sort of natural healing um that the world has to offer but thank you so much holly can you let the audience know where to find you where to follow you um if, if and if people are struggling you know how they could or not even struggling maybe they're just interested, interested maybe they just want to explore whatever. So my yeah. Instagram is where I post mostly. It's just at Holly, my name, H-O-L-L-Y. My website is hollywhitaker.com. And that's where my writings live. And then I am uh, the founder of Tempest. And you can go to jointempest.com if you are looking for support in changing your relationship with alcohol in any way. That's amazing. And your book, Quit Like a Woman? Uh, you can find it at any bookstore. Um, and you can also find it at my website, hollywhitaker.com. I just had to give you one last Thank plug um, because yeah, no, I, you know, I really, I, it was really such an eye opening book. And I think re- regardless of whether someone struggles with an actual problem with alcohol, like I don't think y- y- you need to be that person to read it and find a lot of interesting information in well, it. It's so important, right? Because I think it's one of those things like, we have to be we have to be willing to look at stuff like we really do no matter what our relationship is with something and we're so often so afraid to turn that to look at that definitely so thank you so much holly this has been a wonderful conversation and i hope to speak to you again soon one day yeah thank you so much for having me afternoon tea is produced by sean kilby and jorge morales pico our editor is Stacey Wong. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.